Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. One quick correction before we get started. When introducing our guest, Ron mistakenly states that he commanded 3rd Security Force Assistance Brigade. In fact, he actually commanded the 3rd Squadron of the 3rd Security Force Assistance Brigade. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and Podcast Editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. As the United States develops capacities for multi-domain operations with a variety of allies and partners, multinational communications and digital interoperability become less of a luxury or a desire and more of a necessity. How to develop and maintain such interoperability on the level of communications poses especially serious challenges in the future battle space. Our guest today, Colonel Aaron Dixon, is here to talk about this question of interoperability based on his own experience. Colonel Aaron Dixon has spent most of his career as a cavalry officer stationed in Germany, Korea, Iraq twice, and Afghanistan twice. He's worked with striker formations that were among the first experimenters with forms of interoperable communications. And he has spent the previous three years before coming to the United States War College as a security force assistance brigade commander at Fort Hood. He is currently a member of the U.S. Army War College class of 2022, and we are delighted to have him with us today for this conversation. Welcome to A Better Peace, Colonel Dixon. Thank you, sir. It's good to be here. So I want to start for for an audience that uh, is as uh, ill-informed about many of these things as I am myself. And so um, what is the value of multinational network interoperability? Well, Ron, I think that when you look at that question, um, you start by just realizing how complex all of warfare has become uh, from the types of systems and weapons that we use to the types of things we try to coordinate and synchronize on the battlefield. Uh, if you start with the Army's concept where you can you can YouTube videos on what multi-domain operations might look like across the service, services, you can see uh, where there's a lot of technical items that have to connect to transfer information. But then if you look at the historical view of the United States and how we address conflict around the world, we are a nation that values coalitions. And in order to maintain a coalition, we have to be able to link together in our communications, not just in our concepts of how we want to function on the battlefield. And that is only exacerbated when we look at the fact that we have become so technical in all of our communication structures. Uh, so that's where I started when I was uh, reading various articles and efforts by the Army Futures Command and um, Project Convergence that kind of spurred my thought process on the experiences I've, I've had over the about the last eight years, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And you have been in formations that have been wrestling with these questions. Um, I want to ask you uh, a, a broad issue, uh, and that is, uh, is the Army uh, in a better position to deal with these kinds of questions than other 
branches of the United States Armed Forces, or is this the kind of thing that all the branches are uh, dealing with this in parallel? It's a, it's a really good question. And I, I don't think you can say any one service has the monopoly on, on the question or the problem. Mm-hmm. But what I think the Army does bring to the battlefield and, and perhaps the, the Marine Corps as well is we felt more of the frustrations of the integration than the other services. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're more the recipients of the capabilities that pr- they provide to give us the relative advantage on the battlefield. So when we look at it from that point of spectrum, Point of uh, perspective, I think what we'll see is that we will find more of the disconnects or the that's not going to work, or that's a really good concept and it works in a vacuum. But when I get down to the battlefield, how how reliable is that connection going to be? Right. And, and we are talking about things as basic as making sure that our radios can communicate with each other. Correct. I mean, that's the start yeah. point, Ron. I mean, and, and we've done that for years. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest frustration I think we've had in more recent years on basic voice communications is just the fact that we still have a language barrier. Mm. And we always have a workaround of that on who sits in what vehicle and who's on what radio. But that's really just the, the bare surface problem right. uh, of what we'll face in the future. We're talking about the speed at which digital communications need to happen in order to seize advantage. Right. Um, I have to say the uh, uh, many people with experience in the United States Armed Forces who've had to boot up a uh, United States government computer to check their email in the morning will say that speed in digital communications is an ongoing problem. What are some examples of the kinds of digital communications uh, in a battlefield situation that would uh, that would be part of what you're thinking about when you're thinking about this interoperability question? Right. I think most of my peers will, will think back to their recent experiences in just sending a digital grid or a text message through one of our warfighting tracking systems that at times can be the more stable, reliable platform for the distances we're trying to cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we look at the non-contiguous non-symmetrical battlefield, non-linear that we typically fight on in these days, our most reliable communication has been the satellite link, which more often than not, you can get voice in different ways, but really for most of the maneuverists, they'd say the most reliable platform we've had is that text function through our digital map battle tracking systems. So if that's the default that I'm finding internal to my organization, where theoretically I have the least friction, we can start to imagine if I'm trying to get inter, you know, cross communications between different nations and languages, that's going to be a problem. Uh, and then if you have on top of that, a lot of different software and link protocols that are different between nations, then you get an even more significant problem. And that's where you'll see if you read up on project convergence and what we're doing with the next uh, battle tracking systems, you'll see this phrase pop up a lot, mission partner environment, MPE. So the Army and, and the Joint Force, they already understand that's necessary and, and they have published articles on continuing to refine that system. The question is, how user-friendly is it? How often is it available? Can we produce a repetitious pattern with our partners enough so that there's so much familiarity that it's second nature and we, we find more of the bugs in it. Mm-hmm. That's the piece that I'm really trying to hone in on this paper. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me because we're talking about more than just getting everybody to buy the same stuff here, 
right? I mean, this is right. yeah. So this, this is a question of uh, can people become familiar with this equipment? Um, and is this is it a matter of more exercises? Uh, so is, is, I see part of it is a, it's a technical problem and also a training problem. And how do you bring those two things together? Well, it's it's great, Ron. I, I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am I am not a technical. Mm-hmm person. My education is not uh, computer science or programming. I've been an end user of it. And I know that the types of things we've tried to do as workarounds to make our systems work. Mm -hmm. And I also know that we've struggled with some of our most recent upgrades to how we run our digital systems in the complexity that's needed in a cyber contested world that we live in now. What used to be a fairly simple process of encrypting radios in my early years of um, active duty has now become fairly complex in the program upload, which you'll hear guys talk about. You have to go get your updated plan. It's a whole software upload to make sure that our digital systems talk to one another. And anytime that you have a break in that, uh, where you don't have access to the, the same types of uploads, you are going to have a software problem. So the first problem we have to look at is whether or not we have an approach, a philosophy, a security mindset that says, can I create this environment where I can have allies and partners getting access to that more frequently so that they can practice that digital side of right. it? And then there's the other side of it. You know, my paper, what I talk about training wise, I say, you can look at one of the most popular phrases up until, you know, about 15 years ago was the army owns the night, <laughs> right? It was, it was all our, our night vision capabilities and how well we can operate at night. And night is still the, one of the hardest things we do. And we use that as a standard for our training certification to say, did you conduct that at night? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. But if we go back to where I started in our conversation to say that on the future battlefield, we have to acknowledge that we're going to have multinational interoperability issues. What's the new night of the future battlefield? Right. Well, and this gets me to thinking about something. Um, As much as we talk about developing better digital capabilities in various levels, there's also been a lot of talk about uh, impossible future battle spaces. Uh, we would be dealing with an with a near peer adversary who might be able to black out some or all of our communications. Absolutely. Um, and where does this quest for digital interoperability fit in with this? Also, this desire to create systems that are uh, hardy uh, and hardened against those kinds of attacks. Well, I think Ron, you can actually trace this all the way back to our our core national interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, as a nation, we're very interested in the liberal international order. Mm-hmm in you know, legitimacy on the battlefield. And I have to tell you, if I was playing the op four or the, the enemy simulation, um, and I'm looking at a coalition in front of me, mm-hmm. there's two things I would try to do. If I knew he is ultra dependent on a digital network because all of his high tech systems run off of it, then that's target number right. one. But in right behind that, if I know that his legitimacy is pinned to his coalition, if I can sever members of his coalition from the main element and pick them off, then that gives me the opportunity to then engage in the information space and say, look, your allies can't, your America can't even protect you. Mm-hmm. 
you're helpless without them. And I, I'm able to separate you from, from the mass of America's combat power. I got to say, uh, on behalf of all of your instructors at the Army War College, I'm delighted that you brought in a discussion of the liberal international order um, <laughs> and, the, and the issues of how we deal with allies and partners. Uh, listeners may or may not know that this week that we're recording, this is the week of oral comprehensive exams. So clearly Aaron was ready for his, uh, for his orals this week. <laughs> I think that's terrific. Um, and, and so what would... Um, interoperability look like? One of the things that, that you talked about in some of the preliminary stuff that you sent me was this idea of creating persistent links um, and persistent sort of keys that would allow these kinds of connections. What, is that, what does that look like in practice? In practice, it probably is a, a server cloud-based system that has all of the signatures and identity and, and process that we expect to see on the uh, classified combat system without the actual encryption or, or protocols that we're using once combat actually turns on. Mm -hmm. And we already have precedent for this inside our own training where we have uh, secret training servers, right? When we go to the National Training Center and stuff like that. Uh, we also already have the systems by which we're able to tunnel through civilian networks in a foreign land and create a secret connection. And that's been around for at least 10 years, um, used more heavily each year that goes by. Uh, and then we also have uh, precedent where, like I said uh, earlier on, inside the security forces assistance brigades, we've gone through some of the uh, mental gymnastics uh, and technical uh, fieldings in order to have both a classified and unclassified system walk side by side and communicate with each other whereby you can protect the locator information of our friendly forces, and it really is just the communication. We've found ways to firewall that off at the server level to the event that even when we're partnered with foreign security forces, I can hand them a geolocation device that I've purchased myself or an actual smartphone technology communication mapping system that they then can use to track themselves and conduct their missions, but it also feeds right into my combined picture of, of what the battlefield looks like. That needs to be something that can be trained all the time, anytime, anywhere. And the, the last precedent I give you is we, you know, if you look back over the last five years, we've had discussions of what does command and control from sanctuary look like? If I have this massive communication structure, I can have elements of the command structure still here in the continental US while operations are happening around the mm -hmm. world. And if I can do that, then it's not far beyond the stretch of imagination that the United States, say, partnered with Germany, could say, we're each conducting our annual training exercise here at our home stations. Why don't we make one of our training requirements and objectives for our individual events, the multinational interoperability, and from our own home stations, we can be communicating back and forth over tactical maneuvers inside a training area that's not revealing any war plans or particulars to how we do things. So in other words, if we're, if we're, if we're doing it ourselves anyway, why, why not talk to each other while we're doing it? Right. Um, and so is this something that requires the development of uh, further new technologies? Or is this something that, that we and our partners and allies could start doing right now based on technology that is available to us? Well, Reco I think, rec recognizing, <laughs> recognizing that we're not, we don't give we don't give away any secrets here at at, the, at a better piece, but uh, just based on your understanding of the, the problem, right. 
I think as a non-programmer, I, I have enough evidence and practice to say this is something we could do right now with the right protocol procedure and safety for uh, our actual security on what people have access to. How do I grant them access? How do I turn on off access? And do I have reasonable assurity that that is a safe procedure that I'm not compromising my future combat systems? And we have practice at doing that when we were running our basic server systems in Afghanistan with the NATO allies on just publishing of orders and passing of information, all that sort of thing. So we have enough tools to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But the bigger obstacle we have is the speed of future battlefield and what we're trying to achieve with our own systems. Yeah. So when you, you start talking about that, what you're going to read up on is this idea of hyper-connected battle, that there are so many sensors out there that the human uh, processing cannot sift through it all fast enough. And that's where you'll see Project Convergence and our future battlefield tracking talking a lot about AI being able to sift through what they call the data fabric that's out there in order to find the information that's useful for targeting. When I start talking about the complexity of that software, I know that I'm in the cutting edge of future battlefield tracking, which means everybody's tweaking it and tweaking it and trying to make it better all the time. And when you start to put in other international partners in that process, you can see how they would get frustrated. Like this is constantly changing on me. So what I'm trying to say back to the army is we need to pick something that is good enough for that mission partner environment and then just start using it. <laughs> we need to actually get our, our, our partners in that environment over and over again. And our units, the end users back in you know, our own forces, getting used to this idea that I need to be in that link process. That's part of my training. That's part of my, my core strength is in combat is being linked to my partners digitally through this system. Right. Cause I, I, I'm, I'm listening to you th about this and thinking that, you know, we've come a long way from a, uh, a map, a compass and a pair of binoculars to, uh, to figure out uh, <laughs> how you're going to go. And how has thinking of this in, in a bit biographical sense as well, think back to, you know, second Lieutenant Dixon, when you were first starting to work uh, in cavalry units, um, right. how how does it, how how have things changed specifically um, when it comes to uh, identifying where you are, where you're going, and who you're supposed to talk to on the way to get there? How have things changed from when you first started to before you came here to the War College? Right. So, so as a young lieutenant, you know when we we talk about mission command in the modern day, and I. I take my mind back to the younger days, Mission Command has two sides of the same coin. Uh, the one side is the one that people really like to talk about. How do I function where a guy can go out with an intent and an idea, and he can be outside of communication, he can complete his mission. And there's this, I, there's this counter narrative that'll come around saying, when we look at all our digital communications, we're removing that ability to just trust our subordinates. So they'll go off with an intent and, and achieve the mission. That's possible if if you have the wrong leaders using the systems, mm -hmm. but what's the other side of mission command? I sent that small unit in radio silence out in the middle of nowhere with the hope he's going to find the exact target, and then he's going to have the right connection to bring lethal effects on that target. And we look at what we talked about earlier with the ability to sever communications, the non-contiguous battlefields, and all that sort of thing. Now mission command becomes, well, I empowered that guy with the intent. I sent him out in the middle of nowhere, but the right shooter, because he's the right center, is or sensor is not available. 
because I don't have this robust, resilient, self-healing network or the ability to link through my international partners. And again, I'm not speaking of anything that's that's completely foreign to our joint community. You can read articles through Defense Network and all the sort of uh, types of talks where they've already identified that future problem. What happens when the U.S. force is the one that's cut off? Mm-hmm. He's got the the information on the ground, but he's got to relay it through a NATO F-35 up in the sky, who's then going to send that communication back to the strategic firing capability off of a naval ship that may or may not be a third country in the play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so when we'd have those kinds of complex connections, uh, that's where we really need to have more practice at it. That's outside of the, the conceptual level, which is what typically happens in labs when we assemble a couple of people and say, let's make this, this connection work. And we've seen that problem in, in the uh, striker community where we have the whole myriad of things that are supposed to be able to work and with the right bubble gum and the right finger in the air and, and all that sort of thing, it does. And then in, in the SFAB land where we were working with NetWarrior, there's a lot of things that it can do, mm-hmm. but there were only a couple things that it did well, reliably, and consistently. And that kind of feedback only comes with repetition. Right. And so now, now we look at how do we get repetition? There are things that happen in Europe, uh, as an example, Dynamic Front 21, where we br- do bring in multinational capabilities to try to, to send our fires data back and forth to artillery fires. But that's one event right. with a selected unit and selected brigades. If it's persistent, the partner environment can happen all the time. Now I have more brigades, more soldiers, more leaders getting proficient in it. And I have the ability to do that. If we come back to my stomping house, the SFAB, SFAB can go into a place like Germany and where we would have spent $200 million to have one brigade combat team go to Germany. I can send an SFAB force package there for about you know, 20 to $50 million. And he can partner with 12 units over the course of the entire year, switching units if necessary, whereas the one brigade only did the one exercise at the one time. I, uh, I have a question that's that, that I, that I, I can't quite resist, even though it's kind of a smart alecky question. <laughs> and that is, this all sounds so great, Aaron. So yeah. why do people, why do people need to be told about it? Why aren't, why aren't we just already doing it this way with, the, with, with more, what are the obstacles to creating a system where we can have this kind of repetition and this kind of development of these systems? Right. The biggest obstacles are not the think tankers, mm. not the guys at Army Futures Command. Those are the guys that are, you know, thinking about the future. We can, I, I comedically look back to uh, Armageddon with Bruce Willis saying, you got people just thinking stuff up, you know? <laughs> so we have people doing that. It's the culture piece that we have yeah. an issue with. And if you read up on um, the most, the, the, you know, the, the main effort is uh, the Joint All-Domain Command and Control, JADC2. And when you read all the articles on that, we know that there's different ways and approaches our services look at what should pass between elements and what does command and control look like. You have that piece of it. And then you have our maneuver elements who really like to go to the field and kick in doors and drop bombs and do the things that I do internally to my unit. When I start talking about complexity of systems and connecting to other people, 
we do it, but in our culture, we kind of begrudgingly do it. Right. I know I have to partner with this force when I, and then I, I go on some deployment into, um, if I go to Atlantic resolve in Europe, or I go, uh, out to Pacific pathways in the Pacific, I kind of resist a little bit the idea of having that true interoperability, but then I get on the ground. I have a lot of fun because I'm meeting a different culture, but then I, I encounter these different problems with my technical systems and I go, ah, we tried, we tried. What we really did was we, we maneuvered well together and, and we, we were able to drink chai and we had a good time. Um, and so if you look at some of the call writings, they'll say that that's, that's one of those hiccups is that mission partner environment or the, the ease at which we plug into things. And that's why I titled the article, we got to create a way to just snap link in. Mm -hmm. It's gotta be easier with enough protocols to make it safe, secure to protect ourselves from malicious hard uh, software and other potential threats of unauthorized access. But it can only get better. We can only become more confident with it if we do it, right? If we practice it. Right. Um, right. I was thinking of movie references, right? The the famous Hellboy movie reference where um, at the beginning of the briefing, Hellboy says, skip to the end. How do I kill it? Right? That, that, <laughs> is, that is the, right. the desire to get yeah. down to the business of doing things rather than thinking about, well, how are we going to talk about doing it while we're doing it? Um, right. Do you uh, do you anticipate? So I know that you, you we have you here to talk about this. Here we, you're writing an article on the subject, which will uh, which will see the light of day. Some what one hopes sometime soon. Do you see yourself becoming an uh, an evangelist, if you will, for multi uh, multi domain uh, interoperability um, in your subsequent postings within this United States Army? I think it'll, I'll have an opportunity to ask the, the questions a couple of times. My next assignment leaving the war college is going to be to command uh, a garrison in Germany. So I'll be out of the tactical realm, but I will have the interaction uh, with our host nation, uh, the aviation brigade that'll be there and say, okay, are, are we trying to make this better? Uh, I certainly still have some connections back to the security force assistance command uh, folks. Uh there's a, there's a fleeting idea that maybe I would end up back in that lane in the future mm-hmm. um, after the garrison command. But uh, I think that the real thing is just getting more maneuverist talking about it now. Again, I'll go back to Project Convergence. I, I've got nothing against the uh, Futures Command and Project Convergence. They're the ones that spurred all these thoughts in my mm-hmm. head. Uh, I know that they had two rounds of joint interoperability that's that's been working on the JADC2 I mentioned earlier. And I know the plan uh, for this year was to open up the multinational c- connected t- tissue and data fabric with at least our closest allies, mm-hmm. what used to be called the Five Eye, now called the APCANs. Um, and that's, you know, makes sense. It's a logical progression from one step to the next. My thought is just how long does it take to create, create the familiarity with the end user? Mm-hmm. Are, are we... Are we too systematic on opening this up and, and really getting people moving that direction? Because what we don't know is our other NATO partners, what workarounds will we need for the hardware that they're using right. to even plug into this system? Or, or what do we want to accept as a, as a degraded capability in future conflicts? Have we thought through what, what that might look like rather than just doing the workarounds of, let me get on the old radio and try to make this thing work? And I think- uh, the invasion of Ukraine gives us a little bit of that mindset to go, do we really have all the time we think we, we need? 
And I go back to how long did it take us to really get to the point where we, we were living up to the, we own the night piece outside of our special forces and our, and our ultra good maneuver brigades. And when I first came in the army, uh, night vision goggles were still kind of spurred and shunned and we didn't like them right. and there weren't a lot to go around. And it wasn't really till we fully engaged in the Middle East that you started to see it's part of your standard kit now. You know, everybody has their their night vision capability, uh, but they were first fielded to the Army in the 1950s. Right, right. So it took us decades to really get to that point where you could say, like, everybody's got it and we're all good at it. And we- I think we're going to find we might create this ultra-capable technolo- technology that not everybody has and we're not very good at it. And we could find ourselves in a future coalition battlefield very soon where we go, this is not the advantage I thought I was going to have with my allies. I'm pretty good internally. Uh, and the, the disadvantage we have is that our adversary doesn't have those same problems. And, and that, they have their homogenous formations. They just have to manage themselves. Right. Because that is, of course, one of the great uh, advantages of the United States is that we actually have allies and partners. Uh, but we want right. to make sure that 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 is a moral advantage. Let's say it's a political advantage. But if we want to make it a battlefield advantage, we have to be prepared to have our partners and allies looped in on the battlefield. Uh, and right. these are questions we're going to have to wrestle with. And uh, Aaron Dixon, thank you so much for joining us on a better piece yeah. to talk about this and what it means. Good luck on your uh, spreading the word. And uh, you know, if you uh, as you make progress on this subject, we hope we can have you back here to talk about uh, how this uh, <laughs> how this develops further. Will do. Thank you, Ron. I really enjoyed my time with it's you. It's been a pleasure to have you, Aaron. And it's been a pleasure to have all of you with us too. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice because you know you want to subscribe to A Better Peace. And once you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that's how other people can find out about us too. We're always interested in broadening this community for discussions just like this one. And even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to our next conversation. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.